The Judge and the Journalist, Season 1, The Trial of Joe Exotic. Hi there. Welcome to The Judge and the Journalist. I'm Judge Susie Sexton. And I'm Teresa McEwen, the journalist. And we have Todd Foster back with us because his interview last episode was so interesting and we had so many more questions that And it we... went so fast. I we, know. we it was like and welcome back, Todd. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for thanks for doing another one with us. Thank you. And uh, it's it's nice to be here and I appreciate the uh the accolades. As a person who has spent so much time in federal court, I know that you can answer a lot of these, and I would love your opinion on them regardless. So one of the things I want to ask you about, because when I was reading the transcripts, and I am just, you know, a regular person, never looked at a law book in my life, but I'm reading transcripts from the court, uh, from the actual trial, and I'm thinking, well, if I were sitting in the jury box, there's no way I'd believe anything that was coming out of this guy's mouth based on what I'm, you know, hearing. So, for example, let me just... I grabbed Alan Glover's testimony. He testified for quite some time in the trial. And you he, know who Alan is to the in the whole scheme of things, right, Todd? Alan is is he the one that allegedly was solicited to murder Carol Baskin? Yes, right for Joe. Okay. Yes. So, and I've got a couple I I grabbed because they were all kind of interesting. But the one that really caught my eye was he's being cross examined, not cross direct examination by Joe's attorneys. So the question is, when you were at the park the first time, did you have a drinking problem? And he said, yeah. Did that affect your ability to work at the park? And he said, a little bit, but I don't think so. Did you show up to work drunk? Nope, no drunker than I am right now. Like, like it's just the way this man speaks. And um, so th- then he goes on to say, Mr. Glover, I'm going to... So, Alan had, was having a bit of a trouble understanding what the guy was saying because I'm wondering if maybe he was drunk. Could be. Um, so the, the court says, you know, the, the, the court, which I'm assuming is the judge, um, Mr. Glover, I'm going to ask you to listen to the question. Do your best to answer it if you don't know the answer. And Alan says, I don't even know where he's going with it. Like, he just was very weird. Anyway, and then he said, okay, um, the attorney said, okay, let me rephrase. That's fair. It's a confusing question. You know, what time would you show up to work? He said, sometimes I'd be out there at 5 in the morning. He said, were there times when you showed up to work drunk? And Alan says, well, I stopped drinking at 7 o'clock at night, and on the way I drink should be nowhere in my system by the time I get up. He said, but can you understand someone who supervises employees might not want their employees to be drunk while working? And he's like, I'm sure. It makes good sense to me. He goes, or high on any number of drugs. And he's like, makes sense. And then he goes into this thing with, with uh, about Jeff, which I'll come to. But... The thing about Alan is when he got up there, he spoke about how much uh, drug use and and drinking he did, and that he was also a convicted felon. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, would that not create some kind of reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors that this person that's saying all this is maybe not being truthful? So that gets into what we call credibility of witnesses. Right. And jurors oftentimes are faced with two versions of the same event. Okay. Like what happened? Like in a traffic accident, the light was red and the other side says the light was green. So who do you believe? And that's when credibility comes down. Who's more credible? Who's more believable? And for situations like this, there's a standard federal jury instruction that is given by the judge to the jury at the close of the case that says in evaluating the credibility of a witness— There are certain factors you should consider. 
Not exclusive. That is, these aren't the only factors, but there are certain factors you should consider, one of which is whether or not the person is a convicted felon. Because the presumption is that somebody who's a convicted felon is less credible. And Alan Glover was a convicted felon. He checks that box according to what we're talking about. And number two, whether the person was under the influence of any intoxicant at the relevant time frame. So I think most people would consider that as a strike against credibility anyway. But there's a, a specific pattern jury instruction that is given by the judge to the jury telling them you need to consider that in evaluating whether you believe this person in whole or in part because another standard jury instruction is that if the jury finds a witness incredible, they can disregard every word that person has said. Okay. So if I were sitting in that jury box, I'm sorry, but there's no way I would have believed it. Well, but here, the thing to keep in mind, (laughs) you're considering Alan Glover, but here, Todd, Mm. Joe decided to testify. Uh, See, did you hear him when he his response to that? Yeah. Okay. Not typically a good idea. So correct? what what does that mean in terms of they have Alan? So then what happens? The fact good. that Joe testified. So everything, in my opinion, the judge tells the jury. I'm sure Judge Susie told hundreds of juries this that the burden of proving the guilt of the defendant rests exclusively upon the shoulders of the prosecution. And they must prove it beyond and to the exclusion of a reasonable doubt. That's the state. Federal standards are a little bit different, but essentially the same. When a defendant takes the witness stand, the tendency is for the jury to make it a 50-50. So instead of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, the jury is like, do I believe him Mm -hmm. or do I not believe him or her? Mm -hmm. So the lawyer has to be very careful in putting that testimony in and arguing the testimony to the jury because the, naturally what's going to happen, they're going to go back in the jury room, seems to me, and they're going to say, I didn't believe the defendant or I like him, I believe him, and I don't care what the other evidence is. So it becomes almost like a litmus test as to the credibility of the defendant. It changes the dynamic to me. It changes the dynamic as to the burden of proof. Well, and here's what I, Joe, I think, doesn't agree with this. But in the transcript, it shows that the attorneys wanted the uh, judge to go over the fact that, mm-hmm. I guess, their recommendation is to not testify. Right. Is that a typical thing most de- defense attorneys would say that to their their clients? Well, it's typical for the judge when the defendant chooses not to testify for the judge to do what they call a colloquy, like a question and answer with the person saying, Mr. Defendant, you your lawyer tells me you've elected not to testify. Mm-hmm. Do you persist in that? That is, is your decision? Do you want to think about it? Because what they're trying to do is to avoid an attack on the conviction or attack upon the lawyer later on. Like right. my lawyer didn't tell me I could testify. Right. Or my right. lawyer didn't tell me I can't testify. He said his lawyers didn't really care. Well, I don't know about that. But but um, the fact that they asked the judge to put on the record that he's choosing to testify but need not testify is is really a little bit of, of defensive football there, I, I think, by the lawyers, which, which isn't unusual or isn't I, – I don't see anything of that. I don't think it's anything substandard. All right, so Bill and Kyle, I asked for witnesses. I, I didn't get any witnesses. I didn't get any – 
Ronnie even bought darts and shipped them so I could explain to the jury how horrible it is to tranquilize the cats. Nope, couldn't use the darts. And and you're screwed from the beginning because they do this thing called a pre-sentencing report, okay? And that, that probation officer works for the judge. Okay, so you have nobody on your side to start with. The judge is against you. The probation office is against you. The public defenders are against you because they want you to plead out, okay? So they don't have to work. And they get paid by the case. They don't get paid by the hour of the day. They get so much per case, all right? So the sooner they can end the case, the better off they are. Okay, so let me ask you this then. You were saying about the credibility of the witnesses, mm-hmm. and, and, and again, it's elected the jury like this guy or not like this guy, believe this guy, believe right. that guy, woman, man, whatever. Mm-hmm. So the in this particular case, there were, what was it, 19 counts. Two were the, you know, um, conspiracy to commit murder for hire, and then the other 17 were violations, mostly of paperwork, and then the misdemeanor, I've come to learn, which I find fascinating, of shooting euthanizing the tigers, according to Joe, but in their eyes, shooting the tigers. So my understanding is that typically you do the more serious, you try the more serious cases first, and then you go to the lesser ones. But in this case, they started with basically the tigers because, in my opinion, they thought if we present that this man shot these beautiful creatures, even though they happen to be suffering and sick and that, you know, there's According a to Joe, according yeah. And, and, and his wit and his uh, and the necropsy or whatever, and even the parts that they could see clearly, these animals are very old and, and sick. So, it it sounds like it was a strategy to get the jury to think that Joe was a pretty horrible person and was shooting beautiful tigers before they tried the um, you know the murder part of it. Yeah, it, it wasn't a murder. It was the uh, you have the indictment to conspiracy yeah. to use. Interstate. What? What? What did they? It say? was use of interstate facility in in aid of racketeering, in aid of a, a, a murder for hire. Okay. okay. So y- your point, I concur with you. And like we talked last podcast, that this is an adversarial, competitive thing arena, right? Yes. So the prosecution wants to win, the defense wants to win. So the prosecutor is going to put before the jury any relevant, admissible evidence that they think will help them achieve their goal, which is to convict, Mm -hmm. by including those misdemeanors in the indictment. So you may have asked if he was charged with a dozen felonies, why even add the misdemeanors, right? What Mm -hmm. does it really add? Because misdemeanors, of course, by definition, is a crime punishable by one year or less in jail. And the felonies carry much harsher penalties. So why even put in the misdemeanors? Well, you put in the misdemeanors because it makes the evidence you just described relevant. Mm-hmm. And since it's relevant, if the defense says, judge, we object to this testimony, the prosecutor says, well, I don't know how you can object to that. It's in the indictment. Right. right. I'm required to prove this. Right. Right. So they were able to paint a very pretty ugly picture uh, ahead of time. Yes. And I saw that the defense lawyers attempted to sever, that yes, is, split the trial, split off some counts, and, and that was denied, which is typical. Get, getting a severance in, in a uh, in a federal criminal case is, is rare. It, it's no easy task. Really? Yeah. Right. Well, that's really great to know. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there was at least three. Well, for sure, Alan Glover was a convicted felon. James Gerritsen was another person that testified. He was the um, confidential informant. And he was a convicted felon. And um, 
most of these people that worked at this park had some sort of background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Joe was all about giving second chances to animals and to people. Most of the people uh, that work here have dependency problems. And they can't just sit and watch TV and have a beer and call it quits at a beer. So the house rules of living and working at this facility is one is I'm not going to clean up after you. You're going to grow up. You're going to clean your bedroom. We're not going to have any alcohol brought onto the park and my staff is not going to drink on this facility. Okay. Two, drugs are not tolerated whatsoever. Okay. Uh, until the point that the state makes them legal, they're illegal and they're going to stay off this property. Other than that, you know, uh, it, it's pretty simple. Uh, the, the park has a purpose, it has a mission, it has a past, it has a history, and, and they're going to abide by it or they're going to hit the road. So he would hire, he once said in an interview to me, you know, everybody's one step away from, you know, uh, prison or rehab. Like, he really brought in a lot of people that he was, was trying to give a second chance to. So a lot of these witnesses weren't the, of the most high credibility in, mm. you know, the regular terms. So anyway, yeah, I just, I, I just find it unbelievable, having read what I've read on this, is that the people that were believed and then the people that weren't believed. It's just... So what does a prosecutor do when they have witnesses who have credibility <laughs> problems? What a prosecutor does in those circumstances is they try to corroborate mm-hmm. the witness. So then the prosecutor can argue to the jury, well, you may not like Mr. Witness or you may not find Mr. Witness otherwise credible, but let's look at the other facts which back up or substantiate or, or corroborate what he or, he or she said, including the testimony of other witnesses. So the job of the prosecutor, and you see this a lot in, in drug-type cases where you have a turncoat witness, <laughs> a co-defendant who's now testifying against their their friends or, or their other people. And it's like, who's going to believe this guy? Like, like he's facing 100 years in prison and he's trying to get out of it, and who's going to believe him? Mm-hmm. So the prosecutor in those circumstances and maybe here says, okay, well, toss aside his testimony and just look at the facts that line up or confirm everything that he or she said. So when you have a parade of witnesses, even though they're not credible in and of themselves, when their testimony, it becomes a drumbeat, a repetitive, more and more people are saying the same thing. So that's a form of corroboration. Well, and also the fact that Joe took the the stand, they can compare it to him. They can can compare it to him. He said this and Joe said that. Well, I don't Think, I don't believe Joe, so I'm going to go with this guy, even though he is a felon, you know? Right. And, and the same rules of credibility that apply to government witnesses right. apply to state, apply to defense witnesses, including the defendant. So if the defendant has any of the issues which the state witnesses have. Well, Joe never even had a park, uh, like a speeding ticket. Okay. So he has a very clean record. Then, then that's, then that's a, um, that's a plus for him. And, and that's an argument to the jury that, you know, here. And the other argument to the jury is this guy didn't have to take the witness stand. You know, right. the judge told you he doesn't have to take the witness stand, but he did. And, and so, he so that, very that's, clear on why he took the stand. Okay. He wanted to tell the truth. He wanted his story to get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a human nature, a lot of them. That's why I just want to tell my story to the jury. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't didn't go well in this case. But and it, and I my understanding again 
as a novice, is that that's most of the time your attorneys will dissuade you from taking the stand, right? I think most of the time lawyers will dissuade. You know, certain types of cases the person may have to take the witness stand, like self-defense, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, who's yeah. going to say I was defending myself except the person who, who's right. defending themselves? Let me let me just ask something, and and this is has to do with the tiger thing, which is actually misdemeanor and it's at whatever. But, I, you know, we're talking about pretrial, et cetera. You know, the government never did a full autopsy, or they call ne- necropsy, on these animals. Mm-hmm. They severed the head. What chance does a, an, an attorney, a defense attorney, have to say, look, judge, this is going to be extremely prejudicial, but they never looked at the whole tiger, and we want to have that done? Mm-hmm. Is is that ab- Are you able to do that in federal court? Yes, as long as the the rest of the tiger remains of, mm-hmm. of course right. uh, if 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 it's been you see this in in drug cases uh, sometimes where where there's a sample which is taken right. of the seized drugs and the laboratory uses up the whole sample right and there's nothing left and the defense says well you know we want to we want to examine it ourselves and and typically what what happens in those cases that the the prosecution goes forward it it goes to credibility but I'm not really sure unless the animal was shot in the head. The animal was shot in the head. Okay. So by examining the Which head. Which is how you euthanize a tiger sure. in a humane way, according May, to Joe. Yeah. So by examining the gunshot wound to the head, that that's likely enough to demonstrate a, a, the cause of death. Well, it wasn't so much that. It was that. By not looking at the rest of the body, which uh, had arthritis right. and all that kind of thing, it 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 didn't allow it to bolster his his I statement. See. I see what you're saying. So sometimes what happens in in cases like this is when there is an examination like that, there will be a notice which is given to the defense. It says, we intend to destroy the remainder of the evidence. And they didn't. Nope, they, they buried didn't. him back in the ground. They buried him. Well, then then it may be that they could have applied for a court order to exhume the animal mm-hmm. and then examine the animal for fully, f- fully or, or for the ailments that we're talking about. But, you know, that raises something else. So so when you talk about reasonable doubt, as as prosecutors, we're taught – to prove the elements of the crime. As defense lawyers, we're taught to raise questions Mm -hmm. as to the elements of the crime. So by not having the rest of the body, it could be argued to be a failure of the prosecution to prove its case because they haven't demonstrated that the animal wasn't suffering from what you're talking about. So by exhuming the body, the defense is assuming the burden of proof. And let's say you exhume the body and the, oh, they, they, they get a veterinarian and says, there's nothing wrong with, yeah. with this, right? You've just handed them a strong piece of evidence, which is devastating to your defense. So in a reasonable doubt case, and this ties back to him testifying, mm-hmm. a reasonable doubt case is typically when the defendant doesn't testify and the, you argue to the jury they haven't proven the case because right. they didn't exhume the body because we don't right. know if they had this or that. But once he testifies, it's not really a reasonable doubt case anymore. It's like, do you believe Joe? Do you not believe? Well, or do you believe the paperwork? I mean, and he also had a protocol from his vet that said that a gunshot, instantaneous death mm-hmm. by gunshot was part of his protocol. Well, and his his vet had been with him 20 years yeah. and knew everything. The government had somebody who worked for USDA for two years and had never, I, I believe, 
worked with large animals. I mean, she was, I don't know what exactly she did, but she did not have the experience that the uh, vet that was testifying on behalf of uh, Joe Exotic. But now we have videotape of Agent Bryant saying, cover up the body so the jury don't know they're sick. Jeff, Jeff was recording them the whole time. My lawyer shouldn't have made them dig them back up. They didn't. Bill and Kyle told me we couldn't. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I look at all these inconsistencies to me in the trial, and um, it was a conviction. That's Well, can I? this yeah. brings up one other point, which I, I think is really key, too. And again, it's just a common sense thing. It's not a legal thing. But if I was going to hire someone to kill someone for me, I don't think I would be blasting it to everybody I know. I mean, usually I would think you'd be somewhat quiet about that. So he was not only doing it on his antics on his Joe Exotic TV series all the time. And I mean, it was a constant thing. But even like talking to the alleged hitman, right? So again, let me just quickly read this from his transcript. The question, you learned quickly that Mr. Passage didn't like Carol Baskin. Is that fair? Alan answers, no, he didn't dislike her. He hated her. There's a difference. He said, he goes, um, um, and what I'm asking is that you learn that quickly. He's like, I learned it the first day I got there. And he, and he said... He said, yes, sir. He'll tell, in the, and the attorney said, he'll tell employees and the public. He said, yep, he'll tell people so loudly guests might hear it. He said, not a secret. Is that fair? Ain't no secret. So basically, Joe's out there, I mean, on the Internet, on his show, in the news, at the zoo. It was like, I mean, the first time I met him, the first thing he told me, number one, was that, and I had, I had, when I got there, I had gotten there because of my former colleague Rick Kirkham, he and I worked together on Inside Edition. He's the one that invited me up there to try to create a reality show. The, one of the first things <laughs> Joe said to me is, I, I heard Carol Baskin's name within, like, not kidding, like 20 minutes. And he's like, yeah, well, Carol Baskin offered Rick, you know, $20,000 to destroy my studio and blah, blah, blah. Like, it, it was just a, it was a constant. The feud was so hot between those two. But to me, if I'm a reasonable person, I'm thinking, would this guy really go to some guy he can't stand because he and Alan obviously didn't get along? And of all people in the whole world, in the state of Oklahoma even, to, like, say, can you go kill someone for me? I'll give you $5,000. I mean, it just it just doesn't make sense to me in a, in a reasonable way. Yeah. Well, that, again, goes to the credibility of the evidence and mm-hmm. that it. why would you make yourself so vulnerable to someone who— you can't trust to keep your secrets. Exactly. Again, and that's why I would say, okay, so this man, and there's a lot more in here about how much they hated each other. He mm-hmm. really, really hated Joe. And, um, and I mean, they just, it would be the last person I would imagine that he would go ask to commit murder for him. Yeah. So if I'm in the jury, you know, room, I'm thinking, well, anything this guy said about it, I'm just, I wouldn't even, like, consider it. Yeah, because that, that's, that's a form of impeachment known as bias. Mm-hmm. So bias is a tendency to to mm-hmm. slant the evidence for or against a person. So bias is very powerful evidence because it's motive to falsify, to entrap, to to put somebody in a bad light undeservedly. So the questions you were just reading about that those those would demonstrate bias, right? Yeah, that's a, I, I mean, you know, I don't know what was going through the minds of the jury, but that's why I just find this case so compelling because. Again, we're just taking little snippets mm-hmm. to talk about. Sure. 
But um, and then there was a, the thing that um, Joe had mentioned recently is one of the witnesses that got on the stand. Her name was Darlene, and she testified that she had bought a tiger from him at one point. And it, according to Joe, Darlene and the judge actually grew up together, and he found that out after the trial. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that is that considered unethical, or is there anything? wonky about that or is that just like like no i don't i don't think so i i think that um especially in some areas or smaller areas it's not unusual um to have that happen you, you have people who are witnesses who, who may have contributed to a judge's campaign ah. you know the, but the judge is not the person who's going to determine whether or not to believe this person the judge right. is is just for the most part when witnesses testify is is more or less a referee that, that but point. is there a requirement then or should have been if not a requirement it should have been better practice like we would do in state court disclose by the way uh i'm not the jury but this person contributed to my campaign blah 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 it, do they it, do that in federal at all they they do that or a lot a standard um jury question is do you know anybody in the courtroom do you know any of the parties do any of you know me uh, but but the fact that the judge may have been acquainted with uh, a witness, I don't think is is grounds for any sort of reversal. Do you think? It's no, I don't a, think oh, it is either. But I no, just I don't meant think it would be a reversal. A, but I just it made me question it. But speaking of the judge, first all the civil cases between me and mom and Carol Baskin. He is the one that uh, when Chelsea got power of attorney of mom and Chelsea gave everything to Carol, he's the one that, that did that. Uh, he, then he had my trial, then he had my sentencing. So he is so inter, intertwined in all of the civil and criminal cases that I don't even see how can, he can be not biased. And then, and then Darlene Cervantes that testified against me. Uh, we have her on recording saying that she grew up with that judge. That wasn't released to us. The fact that I, I offered to sell her a tiger for $1,000. Didn't, they didn't do anything because this was all already prearranged. Bill and Kyle were so incompetent because this was already a done deal. This was this was to put, put this case behind them so Amanda Green could be a magistrate judge and Peter and Carol could move on and close everybody down. He oversaw the judgment. Right, yes, judgment, yeah. And then um, then cut to the trial. He oversaw the trial. And then he also oversaw when uh, he's the one that actually, you know, handed over the zoo to Carol Baskin, you know, after Joe was convicted. Mm-hmm. So it was, and that was a civil trial, right, the copyright? So it would be civil, criminal. It was like, I mean, I just don't know how they work that. I'm just curious about that. Yeah, I, that's not unusual. Um Cases are assigned randomly to the judges. Now, you may have a small district where there's only one federal judge or two federal judges. So the chances of the judge getting the case is is 50-50. And what happens a lot of times also is when the judge becomes familiar with the parties or the subject matter, they will designate new cases as related, related cases. So you have a judge who's already up to speed on the matter. Therefore, it's more efficient if that judge continues to hear related, or they matters. know the defendants, they know the parties, they know whatever. It's right, they're 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 familiar, and mm-hmm. you know the, the the parties can object. Judge, you know, I don't want you on this case. We want to recuse you, of course. You good know, luck with that one. Good, good luck with that, especially yeah. in federal court. <laughs> I but, keep asking for that. I don't think that. Yeah, that's that's difficult. That's a high standard. Yeah, 
I want to. I just have one one a question about Jeff Lowe was a big part of this story, mm-hmm. and can you briefly tell what Jeff? I mean, uh, Teresa was involved. How he got involved? Well, Jeff Lowe basically took the zoo over from Joe, and the the idea. He had a lot of problems himself. Yes, and he doesn't. Uh, yeah, he, he's not as certainly as skilled in taking care of a zoo as Joe is, but. The bottom line is, and according to Joe, you know, he just was trying to get rid of him. And Alan Glover was his guy, his, like, buddy that came. He was working at the zoo, and he was also going back to, to Jeff, who was always in, oftentimes in Vegas and giving him intel on what was happening at the zoo. And he would have been a really important— But he was also behind kind of this whole thing of trying to—setting this up to kill Carol Baskin yes. because Lowe ultimately gets— charged, not charged, he gets civil case against him for, uh, I don't know exactly what well, it was. he's a convicted felon, too, but He's a convicted <laughs> felon. Well, let's just, yeah. let's lay, yeah. do the groundwork yeah. here. Most people are convicted felons yeah. in this whole thing. <laughs> but Jeff Lowe was listed as a witness for the government, and the defense did not list him as a witness. The day of trial or the day before, and Jeff Lowe was what could have been impeached like crazy, and he was one supposedly, according to Joe, set this whole thing in motion yeah. to do the, try, you know, the conspiracy, or, right. or you know, yeah. set it up it with Alan Glover and all these people. Okay, the day before trial, the government drops him as a witness. Mm-hmm. The defense doesn't have him listed as a witness. Now, of course, it wouldn't be. I mean, could they have? called Jeff as, what would you call it in, in federal? Is it a, it's not a cooperating witness for you, but can you call yeah. a hostile, what we used to call hostile yes. witness? Yeah, he, they, they could have done that. And the, the hostile witness designation relates to the form of questioning you're permitted to ask the witness. Right. You can ask leading questions and generally you can't on direct. But yes, they, they could have amended their witness list or they could have Ask the judge uh, to have the marshal subpoena this fellow or, or bring day him before. In. Sure, why not? Okay, it wasn't we, like too late. Basically. But they were surprised. See, right, so they were surprised. They were surprised. Well, um, I got to tell you, I, I I wish we could do more episodes with you because I, we're already out of time again. Mm. <laughs> See, you can tell she was with Inside Edition. Uh, we're we're kept on a time frame well, here. Well, <laughs> we, we are. I mean, we do have to. But, sort but of let stick me to just that. ask Todd if but he we has can any. Wrap it up with a couple more things. Right. Yes. I just want to know if you have any any, I guess parting thoughts. Parting <laughs> thoughts or yeah. Uh, insights for us. Well, you know, tri- trials are are always gambles, and you you never know what twelve people are going to do, and and you you could have the same lawyers with the same evidence and the same questions present the case to two juries on two different days, and you get two different results. So the outcome is, was was bad for him, and probably quite the opposite of what he was expecting but shockingly shockingly uh, but yeah. that that's what happens when you you go to court and um most federal prosecutors are skilled they're trained you know DOJ has schools to teach the lawyers how how to do these things and and uh, they know what they're doing and 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 they have a lot of cards in their deck too they have a lot of cards and they have a lot of resources because you know you yeah. have the FBI you have you know you have a, yeah. you know, like a budget that doesn't stop yeah. So it, it it's tough business, and and going to court is is very uh, 
dangerous, and that may be why he felt compelled to testify. He says, I need to help myself here. Well, interestingly enough, all those, um, like, he's the first person that was ever convicted of any of those violations. Hmm. Everyone else has gotten fines or, you know. I don't uh, know if it's called civil citation. I citations don't know. or fines. Yeah. And, and, in fact, in for sure, one of them, um, one of the pieces of paper that was signed by his zoo manager, John Rinke, uh, was signed by John, and Joe was in another state at the time. So he's actually serving time for one felony that he had nothing to do with. Yeah. And, and John was not called to the stand to explain that. Yeah. And he yeah. was there at the courtroom ready to go. And then they, the attorneys chose not to put him on the stand. Yeah. The main USDA inspector that should have testified because she's the one who made me write donate on the receipts. Uh, they claim they couldn't find her to subpoena. How do you not find a government employee to subpoena for trial? I don't understand that one. There's got to be more to it. Yeah. That's what one would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But anyway, this has been fascinating. Sure. And um, I feel like I've really learned a lot. (laughs) Well, good. I did, too. I did, too, (laughs) from someone who spent most of all my time in state courts. Well, I got to tell you, Todd, you know, we're doing our second season. Uh, We're getting more into uh, the Carol Baskin (laughs) stories. You may be coming back here a couple more times. I'll be here. Okay, awesome. Great. If we catch him when he's in town, yeah, <laughs> he okay, flies thank around. You. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you both. It's I, I enjoyed the uh, the talk. Great. Thank okay. you, Todd. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks all for listening. We'll see you next week. That's all set up. Okay, they thought they were going to get away with this, put me away, pass the Big Cat Safety Act, but they were never in a million years expecting Tiger King and the pandemic to hit at the same time. It's the only thing that saved me. We'd like to give special thanks to our sponsor, J.R. Shrewsbury Coaching and Consulting, as well as big shout outs to our executive producer, Pat Kelly, our editor, Neil Galarte of Wild Style Media, Serena Fazan, our BO artist, and Bailey Sweeney, our social media manager. Thank you one and all. Thanks for spending your valuable time with us. Show notes are linked to our website, thejudgeandjournalist.com. Make sure you don't miss any new episodes. So subscribe, tell a friend, and please feel free to rate and review us.